0: So turn with me to First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. We're in a series in First Peter. And also turn to Romans chapter thirteen. It'll be um, pretty clear as we read these why we're reading these two passages together. Uh, They thematically are very, very similar. And um, and again, showing the kind of the unity of God's word, you have the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter uh, giving very similar instructions to the church at, and even at different times. And so our scripture reading will be first Peter chapter two. The main part of the teaching will be verses 13 through 17, but I'm going to back up a little bit to verse nine. And we'll read Second, excuse me, First Peter chapter two, verses nine through seventeen, and then we will turn to Romans chapter thirteen, verses one through seven. Okay, so First Peter two, need a finger there, and then Romans thirteen, a finger there. And if you're there, we'll start with First Peter chapter two, beginning in verse nine. God word, God's word reads, but you are a chosen race That by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And now Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. This is the reading of God's word. We say, thanks be to God. So just a little reminder of where we are in First Peter. First Peter is... Um, reminding this group of churches, these Christians, that, uh, of what their identity is as being followers of Christ and what that entails. How they are to be holy as the Lord God is holy, how they are to live differently than the world or the culture around them, and as are instructions to us as well. He says, using very uh, great imagery that we saw last week, the language that was used for God's special people, who was to be a light in the world, uh, God's language for Israel, He calls them a chosen race, a royal priesthood, uh, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Peter now transfers that to believers in Jesus Christ. He transferred that to the church. But he says something very interesting in verse 11 of First Peter. So I'm in First Peter now, First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. We've seen this many times before. Because of your status as God's chosen people in the world, you have to understand that you you are part of his kingdom. You are a citizen of his realm. Yet we live in the earthly realm." And the scriptures are very consistent about this, that believers in Jesus Christ, because of our citizenship in heaven, we are strangers and exiles here on earth. We're strangers here to the worldly systems. Now, because of that, some people might take the wrong idea about what Peter is saying you might take it to go, well, then I don't have to abide by any kind of earthly systems or structures. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and that's all that matters. I don't operate by the citizens, you know, the realms on earth. Peter and Paul are both very clear to say that's that's not where we're going with this. He wants to say very clearly that even though we are strangers in exiles here, we still have an obligation To the earthly institutions here. Okay. So this is why it goes right from the sojourners and exiles there. He talks about not waging, you know, you, you, you are soldiers and exiles. So abstain from the passions that wage war against your, your flesh, but then immediately goes to talk about the Christians responsibility to the civil governments. Okay. And that's the, the context of verses 13 through 17. So this morning, um, the question is, how do Christians relate to earthly governments? That's kind of the main question this morning. If Christians really are the people of God, they're part of Christ's heavenly kingdom and citizens of heaven, then what is the relationship with the kingdoms and governments of this world? And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And I'm going to be doing it in three parts, three parts. The first one is the principles of governing authorities. So I'm going to talk about what God's purpose and obligation of governing authorities, governments, rulers, governors, etc. What is the purpose and obligation of of them? Then I'm going to go look at now, look at the Christians, um, the Christians obligation to that. So it's the principles of governing authority will be first, the precepts for Christians, second and We'll cover those very briefly because I really want to focus on the third one, which I think is becoming more and more relevant today, the exceptions to the rule, the exceptions to the rule. So let me look at the first one here. The first one is the principle of governing authorities or regarding governing authorities, the principles regarding governing authorities, its purposes and obligations. So a couple things here to keep in mind. First is this, governments and rulers are established by God. Governments and rulers are established by God. Notice Romans chapter 13 verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God, okay? So every governing authority that is in existence, or basically would say this, the, the overall principle of governing authorities on the world is not a human invention. It's not a, like that humans go, you know what? We need to be kind of governed. We should have some order here. This, this actually originates in the mind of God. This is an important point to, to keep in mind. And Romans 13, verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed First Peter, chapter two, verses 13 and 14, where Peter writes every human institution. We're supposed to submit ourselves to every human institution, whether it be the emperor is supreme or governors is sent by him. So human governments are not in uh, an invention by humanity. Human governments are instituted and established by God himself. That's a very important principle. In a way, they are part of God's common grace to, to mankind, as we'll see, to, to restrain evil and to restrain sin. Okay, so that's the first one. Governments are uh, established by God, and I would add to this so much so that gover- governments and rulers are servants of God. Servants of God. Notice what Paul writes in Romans 13, verse 4 and 6. For he, and he's talking about the rulers there, verse 3, for he is God's servant for your good. Human rulers established by God have a specific purpose and they are God's servant for our good. He continues, for he, again, talking about earthly rulers, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Notice verse six, for because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Now, this doesn't mean that every human ruler or have every human governor is a Christian. What it is saying is that their office, they have a God ordained office to act as his servants in the world. So, governing, uh, uh, governments and rulers are established by God. It's not a human in- institution, so much so that they are the servants of God. Therefore, governments and governors are not a law unto themselves. This is the key third part of this. They are not a law to themselves. Governments and governors, whether Christian or secular or whatever, they are required to govern according to God's moral law. This is a very important, very important thing to notice. Notice 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. It says, Submit, whether it be to the emperor's supreme or to the governors as sent by him, and then he gives the purpose or, or the standard by which they are to do their purpose. To punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. The evil and the good here is not the evil and good as defined by them. The evil and the good is the evil and good as defined by God. So earthly rulers are given to humanity to, as a common grace to the world, to restrain sin and evil. God's word is not saying here that governors and uh, rulers of this world get to determine what is morally good or evil. That would be be quite an absurd suggestion to say God is relinquishing the standard of good and evil to, to human rulers. We must not construe this passage, or the passage in Romans 13, to mean that. Most certainly doesn't mean that. Governments and governors are in place to encourage and enforce good behavior and to discourage and punish evil behavior as defined by God. Are you with me? So that's the third one. They are not a law unto themselves, but are required to govern according to God's moral law. And here's number four. Governments and rulers are to enforce uh, the law, God's law, even to the extent that they administer capital punishment. Notice what it says in Romans 13, verse four. It's a controversial topic uh, today. It keeps coming up. It says, verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. What's the bearing the sword mean? It's kind of the symbol of the state's authority, and it's kind of indicative of the main purpose. They are to encourage good behavior, and they are to punish evil behavior, even to the extent of capital punishment. Which is, uh, which is a very controversial topic. Uh, it is something that is, has its basis in Scripture. The book of Genesis is quite clear on this. If you take an innocent human life, um, what would be expected of you is your life. If you shed the blood of an, another innocent human person, the consequence would be that your blood needs to be shed. The New Testament affirms this. I think it's it's quite, not, I wouldn't say funny, but like kind of a little head scratching, comical when, like, progressive Christians, who were very adamant about using Romans thirteen for why churches shouldn't meet last over the last year, uh, are also the ones who are at the forefront of saying we should abolish the death penalty. Because they were appealing to Romans 13 and yet turn around and say we shouldn't have the death penalty. But Romans 13 gives clear precedence for why we should have the death penalty. The governing authorities are put in place and they do not bear the sword in vain. Also embedded in this, too, is the idea that you you need to have criminal oversight, right? You need to have... A court system, but then you also need to have policing. And I thought it was very comical that they're also the ones that were calling for defunding the police. That's another thing. I don't know what number I'm on now, but here's the next (laughs) one. Here's the next one. Governments and rulers, therefore, have a derived authority. Have a derived authority. Okay, what authority that governors and rulers have comes from God. And here's the key thing. He, and you've probably heard me say this before if we've been in like small groups or home groups. um, God will hold them accountable for how they govern. God will hold them accountable for how they govern, whether they're a Christian or not. God will judge all of the governors for how they govern. God will judge uh, Whitmer, Cuomo, Newsom, Pritzker, go on down the list list, not for just what they do in their personal life. They will be judged holistically. If they attain a position that's in a system that God has created and are obligated to administer justice, good and evil, according to God's standard, they will be judged on how they do that job. It's not just what they do in their personal life. Does that make sense? Right? James was quite clear that teachers are held to a higher standard, right? In the same way, the ones who are labeled the servants of God for good in the world will be held accountable for how they govern. They need to know this. They need to know this. I haven't studied this, but I'm thinking that throughout history, I think a lot of people maybe understood this, but I'm feeling like it might be a little lost uh, today. So governors and rulers have a derived authority. And I want to talk about this here a, a little bit too, what I mean about a derived uh, authority. A good example for this would be when Jesus is brought uh, to trial in John chapter 19. You, you don't have to turn there. Uh, I'm just going to turn there to, to read this. And he's brought before uh, Pilate. Um, Give me a moment here to to find this passage here. Um, Pilate hears the charges that are brought against Jesus. And he was afraid, it says in verse 8. And he entered his headquarters and again said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him... uh, You will not speak to me. Now, remember who Pilate is here. Pilate is the one who has been appointed ruler kind of over this entire area um, by Caesar. The emperor in Rome. So Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you know that I do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify? you?" To this, Jesus says. You would have no authority over me at all, unless what? Unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he delivered me over to you Has a greater sin. You've got to catch what he's saying there. Even Pilate, as, as evil as he might have been, was granted authority and Jesus wanted to remind him you don't have author- you think you have this authority because you've attained to this position you are still under God's authority so governments and rulers have a derived authority and this is the basis then for why what Peter and Paul say about how Christians should behave in the world with governing authorities and rulers Christians are not to be anarchists. Christians are not to be insurrectionists. When legal governing authorities are acting rightly and doing what they're ordained to do, doesn't mean they're doing it perfectly, but when they're doing things lawfully, Christians should by no means be acting in rebellion against them, merely because they're they're claiming some citizenship in heaven. Okay? That's the basis of this passage. So here are the precepts for Christians then, right? That's the second one. The first one was principles regarding governing authorities. What's the precept for Christians? It's quite simple. Christians are to be subject to the governing authorities. They're to be subject to the leaders. Okay? Christians are to be in compliance with governing authorities, and not just because of their status as a governing authority. They should do so... um, out of fear and reverence for God. Peter says. Be subject for the Lord's sake. To every human institution. It's a very important thing. Notice in verse 13. Be subject. He says be subject to every human institution. But he says so for the Lord's sake. That's the Christian's responsibility. Now an unbeliever. Somebody who's not a Christian, uh, but who is a citizen in the world, still has to submit to the governing authorities, correct? But they do so on what basis? Out of fear and reverence, because they don't bear the sword in vain. So unbelievers are to respect the governing authority who are establishing good, who are enforcing good and evil, enforcing good and punishing evil, In society. And so unbelievers need to do so out of fear and respect for the sword. Which is the governing main governing purpose. Christians do so not for fear of the sword. But for the Lord's sake. That's a key point. Paul says the the same thing in Romans 13. When he talks about conscience. Conscience. Therefore, verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, like the unbeliever would, but also for the sake of conscience and following the Lord. And so much so even says that that resistance, resisting to governing authorities who are acting properly and according to their properly ordained role is resistance to God. Okay. Okay. Now, I want to point out here the, the the realms of authority, there's a realm of authority for governors and there's a realm of authority for Christians and churches and the realm of governors and rulers and leaders does not have a say in the realm of churches. OK, governors are not permitted to go outside of their God appointed lane. God is. God has given them into the world for this purpose. But he says, you have this lane. This is your job. You're to administer uh, justice. You're to do good. You're to to reward the good, punish the evil in society. But you don't have a, a, a say in the realm that is the church's responsibility. And I think this principle is quite clear from... Jesus' is teaching, and here we'll go to a, an interaction with Jesus in Mark's gospel, chapter 12. You can turn there if you'd like, Mark chapter 12, beginning in verses 13. But it's a very familiar passage. It's, uh, I believe it's in all the synoptic gospels, almost identical in all of the places. And they sent to him, this is verse 13, some of the Pharisees and some of the Rhodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, that is to Jesus, teacher. I, and just like kind of dramatize this in your mind, this flowerly language. They're trying to trap him in his words, but teacher, we, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They don't think that. <laughs> they they, they want to catch him in a lie or, some distortion we know you truly teach the way of god is it lawful to pay taxes to caesar or not should we pay them or should we not but jesus knowing their hypocrisy he said to them why put me to the test bring me a denarius and let me look at it and they brought him one and he said to them huh well whose, whose likeness and inscription is this they said to him caesar's Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Okay, what the main thing I want to notice about this is Jesus is clearly establishing a distinction between two domains. And in the domain that God has appointed that Caesar has control over, Jesus encourages obedience to rightful laws in that setting. But He's also establishing there's another realm that you are responsible to, and that is to God. And as a follower of Christ, that is the realm that that matters. There should be no crossing over from one to the next. OK, there is a realm of the state. Jesus is affirming that. And what belongs to the state is the states. Jesus is fir- affirming that the church is not the, the, the state is not to inject itself into what is God's realm. So Christians can and should be involved in helping worldly leaders determine what laws align with God's moral standard. And what is the the state's is the state's. The church doesn't, doesn't take over things that are the state's responsibility. Let me give you an example. It's not the church's task under the new covenant to implement capital punishment, for instance, because the sword has been given to the state for that. That's the state's God-appointed purpose and obligation. On the other hand, however, the state is not to intrude into the things that are Christ's. And let me tell you, the church is Christ's. The church is Christ's. So where am I going with this? Because these passages, when you read them, you would read these passages that talk about being subjection to the governing authorities It raises some questions. So are there exceptions to this rule? And that's what I want to explore in this this third part. Do these instructions apply to any and all governments and leaders without exceptions? I'm just reading a couple of questions here. For instance, are Christians supposed, supposed to submit to governors, governments, leaders that are evil or make evil laws? Or execute um, the existing laws unlawfully? Does submission to authorities and rulers have limitations? What are, are these injunctions here? or these commands here? Are these just blanket unqualified uh, statements that are absolutes? Or are there times when these... These uh, these instructions don't don't apply. Here's some more questions. What do we do when the authorities and rulers are not abiding by God's law? If governments and rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad, and governments rulers are to give approval to what is good. The question is, then what happens when governing authorities and rulers turn on its people? What happens when governing authorities and rulers upend good and evil? What happens when governing rulers and authorities um, who are not to be a terror to good conduct, but to bad, are themselves not only guilty of bad conduct, but are a terror to good conduct? What do you do when governing authorities who are not to be a terror to good, a terror to good conduct are a terror to good conduct? And what do we do when they are not a terror to bad conduct? What happens when governing authorities don't carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoers, but instead persecutes and punishes those who do good? Are there times when Christians are to resist the authorities? And under what conditions do Christians resist? So, we're entering this topic of civil disobedience and when it is appropriate. My answer to that are there times? Yes. These passages are not a blanket, universal, absolute injunction to submit to the state under any and all conditions and circumstances. That would be a very biblicist approach to the scripture instead of looking at the whole council of scripture. I think in the context here, Peter and Paul are talking about the I—I I would say ideals—but they're talking about when the state is functioning as it should function. Not to say it's not perfect. Not to say that it would be guilty of injustices here or there. But saying, by and large, if things are done lawfully, then you must obey. You should obey. But these are not blanket injunctions for obedience to the state in any and all circumstance. Here's the myth. This is a myth. Rulers and authorities have been granted authority by the Lord Jesus, and therefore they could do no wrong. Whatever they say is right, and we must obey it. That's a myth. That is not what these scriptures are teaching. And probably one of the most disappointing things for me over this last year was to see how many Christian leaders, um, and I'm not talking about for a period of time abided by the governing authorities and the guidelines and those kinds of things to shut down but how many were arguing that the church must submit to the state in any and all circumstances really disappointing to see so these passages are not telling Christians to have unqualified obedience to the state there are times when civil disobedience is permitted and there are times when civil disobedience is uh, not just permitted but required but required so let me give a, a couple of uh, examples elsewhere in scripture why why this is the the case um, and then we might get to at the end here to talking about well what's the tipping point then when when does this apply to us uh, for those who have you know boots on the ground when do how do we know the difference I'm not I'm not promising to give you a whole bunch of answers on that today because, um, well, we'll see. We'll see here in a moment. A couple of examples, and you could write these down. And I would suggest you you kind of look at some of these. Um, going back even into the Old Testament, you see in Exodus chapter one, you see Pharaoh ordering the death of all the Jewish. Baby boys, right? And then you have a couple of Egyptian midwives who don't abide by they they do civil disobedience. Okay, they're not announcing it. Um they're not going to Pharaoh and saying, Well, here's our petition against why we're not going to do that. They're just saying, Well, we're just not going to do that. It's immoral to do that. So they save these baby boys. To attempt to save these baby boys' lives. And that's pictured in the Bible. That's a good thing. That's a moral thing that they're doing. Moses' mother does the same thing. She puts Moses in the basket to save Moses. Going on to the New Testament, you have some New Testament examples in Acts chapter 4 and in Acts chapter 5. Paul, or excuse me, Peter, is preaching the gospel as he was commissioned by Christ to do. And they get in trouble for preaching the gospel. Jesus preaches even to the authorities there, the governing authorities, the um, the. Jerusalem, the council there, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, uh, and all the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And they warned him to no longer speak in his name. They charged him, do not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And they went on preaching. Wait a second. This is the... Wait, that's Peter. That's the Peter who says to submit to all governing authorities. And yet Peter here tells the governing authorities, I'm not going to do that. I'm just not going to do that. That's not your realm. This is Christ's realm. And if Christ, as the king over all things, tells us to go and preach... Well, do what you want, but I'm not abiding by that. Same thing happens again in chapter five. They continue to speak uh, with boldness and they get arrested. They get freed. But they go on disobeying the governing authorities. It's in Acts chapter four and Acts chapter five. You can you could read those there. couple of other uh, examples, and this gives us the good principles here, and we talked about this a little bit last year. Um, when, when is civil disobedience for Christians warranted? And I gave this instruction. I said, well, when the governing authorities command what God forbids and forbid what God commands. And I gave two examples from the book of Daniel. When God... Uh, When they command to do something that God forbids in Daniel chapter three, they set up that pillar and that everybody was to bow and worship that pillar and Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they refuse. They are engaging in civil disobedience. Because the law that Nebuchadnezzar had made was not in accordance with what God had commanded. He was outside his lane. And so they disagreed. So when they command what God for- forbids, that's when we can get engage in civil disobedience. When they forbid what God commands, is seen in Daniel chapter 6 in the lion's den. This is where, where Darius had made it a law. He'd established, as a matter of fact, the language there is very interesting, established an ordinance and enforce an injunction. Like, this, is, this was not, I mean, he these were legal, written in law, commands. And these commands were that you were to only pray to him, not to pray, forbid praying to any other gods besides Darius. To which Daniel said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just not going to do that. So I'll go into my room and I'll pray to the Lord God and I'll disobey your orders. I'm not, not necessarily going to announce it, but my, my curtains are open because the people walk by and they go, hey, Daniel's doing the thing that was not supposed to do. Right. What's very interesting about this is that apparently the language in the prayer had to be out, uh, verbalized so that they would know. Because how would you know? Right. Like if you just pray quietly and say, well, I'm forced to pray to this God, but I'm actually going to pray to the Lord instead. It was obviously clear. That he, wasn't, that he wasn't just keeping a secret. He wasn't necessarily going out and announcing it, but he wasn't going to say, well, I'm going to keep my, my, my worship of the Lord God and him alone, private, a little private matter. He clearly didn't. and because of this, like his friends were thrown into the fiery furnace, he was thrown in the lion's den. Okay? So when? When is a good standard for us uh, to know? Well, that's when the governing authorities command what God forbids and forbid what God commands. And God commands us to gather together on the Lord's day for worship. Okay. God commands us to gather together on the Lord's day for worship. And so that's why we do this. Fortunately, like it's not technically illegal or whatever, you know, against it, you know, executive orders for us to do it. And I've always been very fascinated by believers like in China or in uh, Iraq or other countries where it was clear it's just illegal for you to gather together. And it, the punishment of jail or uh, you know, work camps or correction camps or re-education camps or just, you know, they will uh, behead you in the street. You know, there's a spectrum there, right? And I've always been really fascinated by it. And in the back of my mind, I've always thought I should be probably prepared for that day when it comes. Right. And then, but in the, but even in the back of that back part of my mind, it's never going to come here. It's never. Right. It's never going to come here. Just right across our border, they're imprisoning pastors for holding church services. It's coming. It's coming. And so we need to be prepared. We need to be ready. We're going to. As all citizens, not just Christians, were called to submit to the governing authorities, obey the laws of the government, except in certain circumstances, when governing authorities command what God forbids and forbid what God commands. And then I'm going to add to something that I, I read uh, recently that I didn't include the last time I talked about this. And that is, here's a, here's another good standard. And that is when the state steps outside of its God-ordained realm and seeks to, to give directions and dictates to what the church does. Okay? So that would be another uh, another example. Like in many states it was, well, okay, you could we'll, we'll let you gather together, but only this much. Here's the there's the number that your church can gather and you can't sing. No, that you are outside your lane. You don't get to tell us whether we could sing or not. <laughs> You are outside your lane. Matter of fact, I thought this was interesting. There's a lawsuit right now, and I don't know what level it's gone up to. But in Maine, which technically is a part of our country, I know Maine's like way out there. It's but you, Okay, it's Canada. Just admit it, you know. But okay. So, but it is technically a part of our country. Um, Governor Janet Mills will allow churches, and this is just really interesting of the secular age, right? We will. They will allow. This is written gatherings. If you want to feed people who are hungry or you want to shelter people who are homeless or you want to provide social services, the number of people that you do that in your facility, unlimited. But if you want to get together for religious gathering for worship or a Bible study, irrespective of the building size, 50 people. How does that make sense? How is one a public health issue and one not? Okay. There's no such thing as public health. Um, That's another thing. Um, So so the first one is when governing authorities command what God forbids and forbid what God commands. And I would say as the Christian church, we need to be on, on high alert for when the state is starting to dictate to the church. When it's stepping outside of its lane and it's starting to establish, um, it's starting to to encroach on the church. And the sad thing is, is I've seen so many, so many who go, well, we should. No, no, we shouldn't. I think in the coming weeks, we're going to really unpack this in, in very practical matters. And I think even in our home groups, we will talk about this. What do we do? There is, there is a very strong totalitarian pressure that's coming on us. And we need to be able to recognize it and understand it. I would say there's even a massive brainwashing that's taking place in our society. And I'm, I hope I don't sound like a conspiracy theory kook here. But I think that this is actually starting to happen. Scripture speaks about the Lord on a sinful group of people sending a strong delusion on them. It's not uh, some weird Old Testament passage. It's in the New Testament. The Lord sends them a strong delusion. I'm starting to see, our society-wise, a strong delusion. We need to be prepared for that. And I will recommend as, as one practical step, let me recommend a book to you. I'm almost done with it. Uh, I know a couple of you've read it. We talked about this in in home group too, um, but a very helpful book, helpful book by Rod Dreyer called "Live Not by Lies." I think it's a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh, the uh, uh, the Gulag Archipelago, right? And so, live not by lies. I would really encourage you to get this book and to read it. I think the beginning he does a good job of warning about the what he called soft totalitarianism that is coming. And then the latter half of the book he does by telling stories of uh, believers in Eastern European countries that lived through communism, lived through the, the Iron Curtain as Christians, and all that they had to experience, the rewriting of their history, the brainwashing of them, and what practices they had to do. To protect to protect their identity to not give in to the lies of the the Ministry of truth that was trying to overwhelm them with uh, a rewriting of their history he, he tells their stories and he gives some very helpful tips for the church so uh, he is himself Eastern Orthodox he tells the stories of a lot of Catholics in there those aside I think the what he what he has to say to us or what they have to say, as he's telling their stories, is very helpful for us. And the reason why I share that is because soft totalitarianism is coming. And this is not just a political thing. This is spiritual warfare that's happening. This is a spiritual war that's happening. And so we need to be, uh, we need to be very diligent. We need to be on our toes. We need to be ready... To fight. Now I'll say I'll say this. Because friends, we're going to be having to go into civil disobedience. <laughs> we're going to have to do it sooner rather than later. Uh, it's going to happen. In some ways, it already is happening. We need to be very careful on when it happens and how we do so. But let me just uh as just kind of the last little reminder here that if you engage in civil disobedience, out of obedience to God. And disobedience to a state that steps outside of its lane, uh, then just know that doesn't mean you're exempt from the punishments that will be coming. Okay, go. Hey, I'm following God. Therefore, you can't arrest me. No, they're still going to arrest you, and you have to say, "That's that's the deal." They're doing so wrongly. They're doing so in error. They're doing so upending what it is that they're supposed to be doing by promoting the good and punishing the evil, and instead they're promoting the evil and punishing the good. But it's, it's coming, right? So you have to recognize, if you, if we engage in civil disobedience, know that it doesn't exempt us from the consequences. Jesus told us to count the cost, and we'll have to count the cost. And so when are Christians to engage in civil disobedience? Well, when governing authorities command what God forbids, forbid what God commands. And when the state steps outside of its God-ordained realm and seeks to make dictates to the church, then we respectfully say, no, no. We're just not going to do that. One thing that the scripture does also tell us to do in relationship to governing authorities is to pray for those rulers in governing authority. So that's how we're going to close our time. Um, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and this is in a passage that's in the context of corporate worship. Like this is what should happen when you gather together. You know, uh, men should lift up holy hands in prayer, and it's in this large passage. This, this is what should you know? You should be preaching and those kinds of things. He gives these instructions. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and excuse me, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way, this is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. So I would say in our closing time here that we would pray for the kings and all who are in high positions. Because remember, these are roles that are appointed by God. No authority is established that hasn't been established by God. I would pray and Encourage all of us to pray to pray that those who do not know Christ would repent of their sin, that they would turn to Christ, that they would um, that the Holy Spirit would bring conviction upon them. They would by faith receive Christ's righteousness, cleansing and forgiveness, and that they would be renewed in their minds so that the ways in which they do not govern according to God's law, that they would then start to be cognizant of the ways in which they have broken God's law and then will govern according to God's law. So pray that they would become Christians and two, that they would at least whether they reject Christ or not, that they would at least govern within the parameters established for them by God to promote the good and to punish the evil, that they would at least get on track with what their purpose and calling is. And pray that they would cease from taking authority that is not theirs. That they would stay in their lane and they should not seek to dictate what isn't theirs to dictate. So that they could leave us alone. That's what I mean, that's what he says, right? That, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Just leave us alone. So pray for them. Pray that they would become Christians, but at least pray that they uh, would would govern within the parameters that God has established for them because, um, because God will judge them and pray that, that God would give us the strength to speak to them the truth about what their role is. So let's close in a, in a word of prayer. Father God, we pray. Now, as we heed your word, help us to be people who are not, don't have rebellious hearts, but that we are people who rightly submit to the government who is rightly administering the way that you've appointed them to that even though we're strangers and aliens on this earth that we don't uh, that we don't forget that every institution And the the idea of governance in this world is established by you. And so help us to not disregard lightly those instructions. But God, we'd ask that you would give us the strength and the courage and the wisdom to know when it is that the state has gone too far. And when it is time for us to not only be permitted to stand up, but God, that you would give um, give us the strength to do what is required of us in obedience to you. God, we want to pray, as your word says, for the rulers and the governing authorities um, from the highest office in our land all the way down. We pray, God, that they would become that they would become Christians. They clearly are not. God, we pray that they would. That they would surrender their lives, that they would repent of their evil and wickedness. God, that you would also make them aware of the punishments that would be coming to them for the way in which they rebel and mock against what you require morally of all people. God, open their eyes to the reality that it will hurt if they stay in their state of rebellion against you, that it will hurt when their teeth are broken by the rod of iron of Jesus Christ on the day of his wrath. But God, we pray that they would at least, at least govern in a way that is consistent with what your word requires and help us to know how to let them know what their job is. We ask that you would do that here in and among us because we know that the time is short. Give us strength to do that through the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, a stand for a closing uh, benediction. Now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. And also with you. Thank you.